Well, hello, everybody. This is Tim Green with Rattle Magazine. Welcome to Rattlecast number 70. Thanks so much for joining us. Our guest today is Alan W. King. He's on the line. We'll be talking to him in just a minute. But before we begin, I should say that Rattle is a publication of the Rattle Foundation, a 501c3 nonprofit working to promote the practice of poetry. And if you like poetry as much as we do, please click the like button and share and do all that good stuff now while you can, while I'm just doing my little spiel, because that'll help uh, stuff spread around. All the social media platforms where this is streaming, whether that's Facebook, YouTube, Periscope, Twitter, I think I said everything that's live right now. And um, yeah, but let's do a warm-up poem to start out with. And the warm-up poem for today that I thought we would do is um, this poem by Lori Uddich, which um, we just nominated for a Pushcart Prize, one of our 2020 Pushcart Prize nominees. It was one of the ones, to be honest, that I was thinking of making a Pushcart Prize nominee. It was in the top 10 or 20. And um, then we posted it back on November 23rd, and the poem kind of went viral. And uh, there's uh, over 11,000 people shared this poem, which is our second most shares all time, um, coming in uh, second place to uh, Sherman Alexie's poem right after the quarantine. That had 70,000. Um, so, um, and it's only been up for like two weeks and already it's been spread around that far, but I haven't really heard much, um, you know, people noting the fact that it's, uh, gone viral. Just, I get a lot of emails about it and, uh, a lot of social media posts. And this was from the fall issue, rattle number 69. I'll put it on screen for everybody here. This is to my student with a dime sized bruises on the back of her arms, who's still on her cell phone. And here we go. To my student with the dime-sized bruises on the back of her arms, who's still on her cell phone. Oh honey, you can text him, you can like his meme, you can follow him on Twitter and to Target, you can ride shotgun, hold his anger on your lap, pet his pride, be his ride or die, you can wear those jeans he likes, you can discover Victoria's Secret, buy a bra with a mind of its own, you can recite I'm sorry like it's a Bible verse and Snapchat the shit out of those purple roses he bought you at Publix. You can try every one of Cosmo's 30 ways to give an ultimate blowjob. You can remember the name of his mother, his best friend in second grade, the lunchroom lady who gave him extra chicken strips on Tuesdays. You can grow out your bangs, toss your hometown over your shoulder, sleep facing north with your cheek in his back. You can strip yourself for parts. But baby, it still won't be enough. You can love him, but you can't pull his story out of the dark and slide your arms into it. You can't wash it and lay it flat in the sun to soften. You can't hold his face in both of your palms and watch tomorrow bloom from the sheer wanting and waiting of it. It doesn't matter if his daddy talked with his hands or his bloodline is married in booze or his mama loved his brother best. You can't fix what somebody else broke. So girl, put down your phone and pick up your pen Take a piece of the dark and put it on a page. Sylvia Plath waits to wash your feet. And look, Virginia Woolf has built you another room and painted it pink. There's a place for you at the table. Sit next to me. I got here late. Oh, baby, don't you feel it? You were knit for wonder in your mother's womb. You were born for the driver's seat. Once again, that was Laurie Uddich with... Uh... To, to my student with the dime-sized bruises on the back of her arms who's still on her cell phone. Uh, baby, don't you feel it? You were knit for wonder in your mother's womb. What a great line that is. And that was today's uh, warm-up poem by Laurie You can find her. Uh, there's how do you spell her name. It's L-A-U-R-I-E. 
U-T-T-I-C-H. And uh, you can find her online at Lori Uttich on Twitter. So find Lori, follow, go follow Lori right now and you'll follow a good poet. And uh, that was our warm-up poem today. Hope you enjoyed it. Uh, one thing I wanted to mention before uh, we start too is that we're going to do the open, open lines a little differently. Um, I think I'm going to expand it a little bit. So we have the, um, the prompt poem that we always do. But um, I think I, I'm tired of trying to like, squeeze in all the prompt poem readers into like that like 20 minutes or so that we have. So I'm going to extend the show to like two hours. We're going to have a full like open lines from now on. And um, you can do it for the prompt poem. You can do it for other stuff. Like if you publish a poem recently that you're proud of and want to share it. Um, so it'll be the same way. You just email the poem to me ahead of time at openmike@rattle.com, and then call in. And you can share whatever you want. That's going to be the new, um, the new way it goes. And we're going to go on, on the Rattlecast for two hours from now on. Um, or at least that's going to be the target. It can be a little, uh, this isn't a time for TV or anything, so we can do whatever we want, but, uh, it's going to be roughly two hours. Now, um, today's guest, as I mentioned, is Alan King, and, uh, Alan's been in two issues of Rattle, number 31 and number 54. Uh, his most recent book is Point Blank, which I'll put up on the screen, uh, right here now. This is Point Blank by Alan King, and, uh, before that, his other, po- her other, other book of poetry was Drift, and he's got a new book, of poems coming out soon, which was called, um, uh, what was it called? It was called Crooked Smile, Crooked Crooked Smiling Light. And, uh, he's from, he's an author, poet, journalist, and videographer, uh, who lives with his family in Bowie, Maryland. Uh, He's a communication specialist for a national nonprofit and a senior editor at Words, Beats, and Life Global Hip Hop Journal. He's also the author of Point Blank and Drift, which I mentioned. He's a graduate of the Stonecast MFA Low Residency Program at the University of Southern Maine. And his poems and stories have been all over the place. Here he is, Alan King. Hey, Alan, how are you doing today? Hey, Tim, how are you doing? I'm doing great. I kind of got through my spiel, and now I'm looking forward to having a, uh, <laughs> a, nice, a nice rattlecast. Uh, do you want to start us out with a poem just to sort of set the mood? Sure, sure. So I will start. The poem I'm going to read is The Land of Innocence. And it's the last poem in the manuscript. And this one is for Jade Rose and George Floyd. And so Jade Rose is my six-month-old now. So this is the land of innocence. A YouTube clip shows a protest ignited after police killed George Floyd. Torched SUVs, overturned cop cars, armored officers retreating. All of that sinks my wife into a deeper postpartum, having made it through our personal crisis. We watched the python of despair coil itself around America, blowing out glass storefronts and colliding angry bodies as the tension constricts and crushes. We're miles from the mayhem, but a different kind of danger finds us in the maternity ward, a decreasing heartbeat Frenzied nurses rushing my wife to the OR, surgeons scrambling to save our daughter. Watching the news, I'm reminded of slogans on chaos as necessity. Real discoveries come from chaos. Chaos is beautiful and full of fertility. But when it's a violent pattern of reactions, what's the real discovery? Where's the beauty in things shattered and tagged if the same pattern of injustice ripples our lives? Maybe chaos isn't the right word. Let's try instead challenge. 
And since it means refuting the truth or validity of it, isn't a protest a public dispute of someone else's truth? Like the one about the fear of dark bodies, how it justifies them being mangled or discredited in news cycles. Wouldn't the beauty then be new laws that get us closer to becoming the people the Constitution claims it protects? Let me begin again. When my wife told me several months ago she was pregnant, we knew the challenge of this birth could take her life, just as the challenge in the hospital threatened our daughters. And isn't it an act of faith to go blindfolded into the future and be delighted by the light there? Now we're lit by a dancing star named Jade, short for Jadesola, which in Yoruba, means coming to wealth. She's jade like the green stone said to emit wisdom and clarity. I'm feeding her while watching the YouTube video. Someone on screen yells, we're better than this. And she squeals, mouth dripping with her mother's milk, smiling while dreaming her baby dreams. That land of innocence, where it all starts before we lose our way back, rationalizing our destruction. Thanks so much. And that was uh, The Land of Innocence from uh, Alan King's forthcoming book, Crooked Smiling Light. Um, uh, where is this book uh, coming from? Uh, I, I couldn't find it. or I looked it up and right before the show started, and I couldn't figure out where it was going to be published. No, no. So it's, um, it's a chapbook. It's coming out through Plan mm -hmm. B Press. And so they haven't set, like, a publication date. They just said that I can say it's forthcoming for right now. So, um, you know, I've been, you know, as folks follow me on social media, like, I'll continue to update uh, people on it. But, um, yeah, Plan B Press, they're really cool press. They do mostly chat books, but I think the only full collection they've done that I'm that I'm aware of is an anthology of DC poets called Full Me Full Moon on K Street, and f you know f those listening and watching this show, if you get a chance to check it out, it's really cool. So it's like intergenerational, and it's a lot of older poets from DC along with younger poets, and the order of the poets in that book is based is, is based on age. So like it, you know, I think it starts from young and goes old, or maybe the other way. But it's it's cool. We all had to give the editor our birthday, <laughs> <laughs> so it's it's pretty cool. It's an interesting concept. Yeah, that does sound really interesting. Um, and anybody who wants to find and, and follow Alan King can uh, find him at alanwking.com, his website, which will have all the stuff and then all the social media stuff. So go there, uh, bookmark that right now, and, and come back to it later to find uh, where the book's coming from. Um, so Alan. Uh, let me start out by uh, just asking how you got into poetry. Like, what is your journey um, to get to be a place where you have two books published and another one, you know, forthcoming, and you're sitting here on the Rattlecast? Uh, how did you get into poetry, and why? Oh man, so it's <laughs> so it's you know it's a little cliche. Like, um, well, I, I'll start. Well, it's not totally cliche. So I'll say that my introduction to poetry came in middle school. And, um, you know, we were doing a lot of the rhyming poems. And, I, I mean, I love the rhythm of it. I love the challenge of trying to find uh, words that rhyme. And actually, a, f a friend of mine at the time, 
you know, he wrote a poem and, you know, I was like, oh, man, it wasn't all that. And he was like, well, if you think you could do better, you write your own. And, I, you know, I don't know if I did better, but I just know that it sent me on a journey um, where I did enjoy, you know, learning about it, writing about it. And so but it, it was funny, like I kind of like left it after I say like seventh grade, just kind of left it alone. It was a unit. Um that we did at school. And then it wasn't until high school uh, when I was trying to get girls, you know, I um, got back into writing poetry. And um, I say I didn't, I think too in high school, like my my world just opened up with poetry because one of the awesome things was that in se- my senior year of high school, my English teacher was like the first living poet that I met. And uh, Mr. Grimes and the cool thing, Mr. Grimes was, you know, he would teach us all these different rhyme schemes and, you know, Spencerian son and Shakespearean son, you know, do all the different rhyme schemes. But then he would bring his own poems into Mm -hmm. the class. And so, you know, to that point, I didn't know what happened to poems after they were written. I was like, okay, you put them down on the page, maybe read them for a little bit. And then that's, you know, their, 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 their shelf life or whatever life expires. Well, he brought his poems to class and was like, well, yeah, I want to try these poems out on y'all. And so I was like, well, why you want to try them out on us? You know, what you getting ready to do with them? He said, oh, I'm going to take them down to D.C. and I'm reading on open mic. And my head just got hot. <laughs> I was like, there's a place you can go to read? and So, like, that's when, like, open mics and, you know, I started learning about all of that. But um, I'd say even more, it wasn't until I got into college where I really, I got even more serious um, because you know, I, I wasn't I wasn't reading much poetry in high school, and it luckily I got in a group of folks. I got with a group of folks, a crew of other writers that were like, "Hey, you should read this. You should read that," and they were dropping all these suggestions. And that's when I started reading Yusuf Komenyaka, Sonia Sanchez, and like really just kind of going through what I think was the real learning, you know, really, you know, just taking in and really just seeing like the possibilities for poetry. So, you know, I mean, that's pretty much it, you know, the entry to, to how I got to, um, you know, where I am now. Yeah. Well, do you want to read another, uh, another poem or two? Sure. Sure. So a lot of my poems pull from, it's funny. It's um, like an amalgamation of like experiences. So they pull from my experience, experience of others. Uh, but the if it's okay, there's like two short poems yeah, I wanted to perfect. read. Just let me know uh, from where. I'll, I'll find them. Okay, so Beacon is the first poem, and then the second poem is Into the Light, and they're both from uh, Crooked Smiling Light. So I'll start with Beacon, and both of these poems are self-explanatory, but you know, we can un- unpack them or talk more about what the issues that they're dealing with. And so start with Beacon. An intern asks, aren't you scared? And you remember the hospital clerk saying what you're doing is courageous. You do what you have to for your wife whose life is leashed to a box, cleaning her blood before spooling it back into her body. It does what it has to because her kidneys can't. And weren't they courageous standing their ground before lupus took them out? Its gluttony left you scratching your head, lost in this new life. The one that marks you donor and your wife recipient. 
The one where the transplant centers another turf to navigate. This life, where words like renal failure and nephrectomy, seizing your new tongue. You watch your wife sleep while the machine chimes and beeps, remembering the intern's question. Of course, there were moments that gobbled your bravery to a morsel. The emergency room visits, lupus nearly taking her out. And isn't she the courageous one? How she welcomes each day, even those where grief is the overcast sky. Those moments when the only light is her heroic heart blazing these dark streets, winding beyond the mysterious and unknown. And in the next piece is Into the Light. You're a floor below me, healing in your room. Both of us soar from the divine puppetry of science. God pulling the surgeon's strings, sliding the kidney from inside me, routing it to its new body in Connecticut. And wasn't he present in the hand's death dance and how hope lit the operating room like a stage. Your new kidney ready for its debut inside you, having traveled in a freight of prayers 17 hours from Minneapolis to D.C. Didn't our road here seem even longer, not being a direct match? The hiccup in lab results, us hurling our names into an exchange pool deep with uncertainty, and here we are, in our beds, an elevator ride from each other. This moment, like the 90-degree day beyond our windows, the cloudless sky, shadows receding in the sunlight. Wow, and those were uh, two poems from Alan King's newest book. Um, but but so tell me about the, the actual story of that. Like, So you uh, gave your wife a kidney? Or, or not, no, I mean, you had to, like, how did that work? Like, what, like, you gave somebody else so somebody so else the, could give your wife a kidney? Is that, wow, wow. So that was the, in, the intention was for me to donate directly to her. And the crazy thing, uh, so this was in 20, I think we were going through all of this, and, yeah, I think it was 2018. And so the crazy thing, you know, I got my blood test everything done and we were getting ready to go they, they were getting ready to schedule our surgery and then the hospital called me and was like hey we gotta we, we we gotta delay this you can't donate directly to your wife they said we looked at your blood labs so it was like uh oh, wow up. they screwed and, like, that up oh so, dang so yeah, that would like so they were like y'all yeah. are not a direct oh match. wow and so I was like, oh, shoot. And so at the time, my wife was doing dialysis and she was doing it at home. And it was I mean, it was eating her away and it was just it was just too much mm-hmm. to watch. And um, so I really, really wanted to. You know, well, we, you know, she and I, you know, were trying to find out how she can get a kidney sooner. And, we, you know, went through the orientation at Georgetown and they were like, even if you're not a direct match, you can become a part of the kidney hmm. exchange program. It's a national kidney exchange thing. So I donated to my blood match, and then she would get a kidney right away from her oh. blood match. And it's so what they do is like they wait to the uh, like 
equal numbers of people in the exchange. So there were five people in an exchange waiting to, uh, yeah, my wife being added to it, it was five, and then me being added to it made it six. And so then it set off, you know, that, um, so six people, you know, were, were having surgery on the same day. They did all the donors in the morning, and then they did all the recipients in the evening. And, you know, I mean, it was a scary part of our life, but I think, you know, we're in a much better place now. Mm-hmm. You know, my wife is not doing dialysis, and we they, they told us we, we couldn't have any more children because when we... When, when my wife got the diagnosis, uh, uh, we had already had um, my, my older daughter. And they were like, don't even think about trying to have kids because mm-hmm. of the strain that pregnancy would put on that, you know, her, her um, new kidney. And we, we weren't planning. And, <laughs> it, um, you know, my wife was pregnant with, uh, you know, she didn't, you know, we get pregnant <laughs> with... Um, our second child and she came there were no oh, wow. issues and so we're just great that everything yeah, worked I saw out that picture on your video and i was doing the math in my head two years ago wait a minute <laughs> <laughs> yeah yes. well uh yeah so so how's she doing now is it is everything did it like it i assume it took well and, and there's just no problems is she sort of good to go now yeah so the crazy thing and you know the doctors some of the doctors panicked when they you know, when he found out that, um, that we were pregnant. But wild thing is that actually after the birth, like her kidney function improved dramatically, mm-hmm. like with the donated kidney. And so, like, I think, you know, her um, creatin was at one level and it was alarming, but like now it's like the best it's ever been. And so, um, and you know, my wife does her own research too. So she's, you know, she, you know, they were like, oh, you know, kidney function tends to fail after birth. But in her research, she found that it was because once the mothers gave birth, they didn't keep up with mm-hmm. the visits. That was it. It didn't have anything to do with the baby and, and, oh, and the strain. And so yeah, my that wife, makes sense, though. It really does, because you're so preoccupied mm-hmm. with having a little kid, you know, you can't take your yeah. time to go to the doctor. Yeah. 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 Wow. That's an amazing story. Um, which kind of brings one of the things I wanted to ask you about was, um, you know, the thing that's really great about you is about you're so honest and direct. Um, that's sort of mm-hmm. your style. And um, but but what is your like? I was thinking of um, you have a poem. Um, I think it's Matchsticks and one of the, in in, uh, in Point Blank about like fighting with your father. Uh-huh. You have this poem about your wife's <laughs> dialysis. Um, you have a lot of very personal stuff in, in these books that are very um, you know like nothing is couched or opaque. Like you tell your story. And uh, it's one of those where, you know, I imagine that it's all true. You know, you're not supposed to imagine that uh, poems are autobiographical. But, uh, but with yours, I mean, if, if, I would be very surprised if they weren't. Um, but so, so how do the people around you, um, you know, do your, do your, uh, did your family read your poems? Uh, did, your, did your father? So luckily my, luckily my parents don't. <laughs> yeah. So, <laughs> because... You know, some of those poems, I mean, the thing, too, is my dad and I were in a much better place, you know, but when I wrote Matchsticks and when when I uh, wrote some of those other poems, and there's even a poem in here that's not as flattering, but the way, um, I'll just say this real quick, the way I laid out the manuscript for uh, Crooked Smiling Light, I was like, okay, if I'm going to include a poem that's not flattering about my dad, I have to have something 
along the way from that that shows his humanity that that gives him uh, an opportunity to uh, redeem himself. And so that's uh, where I went with that. But no, my is that me? Uh, it's not me. <laughs> like, oh gosh. Okay, I may have to switch. Sorry. <laughs> if uh, <laughs> hold on, let me try something okay. else. Yeah, no I'm problem, sorry. No we good? Awesome. Great. Man. Yeah. I'm, 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 <laughs> that was that was the best uh, on, shift on the fly we've ever had on the Rattlecast. <laughs> a lot of times i'd be like call like hanging up and calling on the phone or something by now <laughs> yeah no i'm just glad it worked out. <laughs> well uh yeah well now we got you back um uh, and, and along that same vein like what is your uh like philosophy for poetry like why do you it just feels like honesty is such a, a um a central aspect of of your writing how did that come to be and, and like why like what what is your goal as a poet what are you trying to do well, I, I think, you know, the reason why um, I, can, I can be honest in uh, my work is that, um, you know, like I, at one point that was the only, you know, like my, my life was like the only source of inspiration, the only thing I had at the time I could pull from. And but even then, I think like in Drift, like I was not as honest, like I was. Uh, a little worried about being direct or really going there. And when I was in grad school, um, I, you know, I got to study under one of my favorite poets, uh, Tim Siebels. And he, the best advice he gave me, cause he was getting on me. He was like, man, you're like, you're like holding your punches, man. Just, just throw them. And I said, well, Tim, you know, how do you know when, um, how do you know when you've given enough? And he says, we love the soloists for what they give us and not what they hold back. And so I was like, okay. And I think as, you know, as I worked with them and as I, as I started pushing myself, I, um, you know, really started being comfortable with just, you know, just putting certain things out there and um, kind of going as far with, you know, just going with it as far as I can. And I think like my, you know, like I wouldn't write a piece about my wife that's uh, disrespectful or anything like that. So I do still have like my internal filters, but, um, you know, I think <laughs> too, like when uh, the, the poem matchsticks and some of the other pieces, like about my dad, you know, like I was, I rarely write things when I'm angry. And those were the pieces, you know, kind of like in the moment. But I think, you know, I always think about what Tim says, though, about the soloists, you know, us loving the, like the soloists for really going there and not what they hold back. And, and I think, too, like when I'm writing now, I have to ask myself, you know, what am I holding back? What am I not, you know, what am I not saying that that uh, that I think is appropriate to be said in the piece? So, you know. Yeah, well, that makes a lot of sense. Uh, but before we go on, I should say that if anybody has any questions for Alan, uh, just leave them in the chat window. I am watching YouTube and uh, Facebook, but not the other two. Uh, but let's hear another another poem or two, Alan. Okay, sure. So let's see. I will. Well, since we talked about honesty and we talked about my dad i'm gonna read the first poem in the manuscript 
in your dream. And I have to say, I'm not in this place anymore. I was <laughs> with a much better place in your dream. You bob your father's jab before your right hook drops him, before you trip him up when he runs for his gun. The one he said he'd blow you away with if you ever hit him. You hit him again after taking a knee, nursing a hatred you once pushed away, like the beer he let you sip before you gagged. You remember him laughing and saying it's an acquired taste. At 12, you knew you'd never learn to love something so disgusting. But every embarrassment was a forced sip with your father there laughing, like that camp like that camping trip with your cousins. He called you a retard for pouring him hot Coke and threatened to throw it on you when you said he didn't ask for ice. That smart mouth stoked his desire to knock you down and pound your chest when you try to get up. Wasn't he Cronus attempting to keep you from besting him, playing down your accomplishments? He has an appraiser's eye for spotting the worst in everything, like the party you and your wife hosted, your home full of good food and friends, everyone fed and happy, except your father, who complained about your wife's shorts being too short, how it was inappropriate she bent at the waist instead of at the knees. He complained about your barking dog outside, about the house you bought without consulting him, the house that drove him to stop talking to you for six months. He'd keep you from getting up if he could. That's what he told your brother. That's how you know this. But this is your dream, the one where you watch a childhood bully cower, that moment filling you with a twisted type of triumph. That's how Zeus must have felt, surviving his father's appetite and jailing him to the underworld, which is where your father fell. So far from grace, he squints when he looks up at you. Thanks. That was Alan King with uh, another poem, the opening poem, In Your Dream, from his uh, forthcoming book, Crooked Smile, Crooked Smiling Light. Um, mm-hmm. let, let me, uh, another thing I was wondering about, one of the interesting things about, about you is that you work as a journalist, too. Um, and the first poem that we published mm-hmm. of yours, uh, Chagrin, which we featured on the, uh, on the website today to sort of preview this broadcast, uh, you mentioned that it was inspired by um, um, interviews that you did with poets. Um, was it after the uh, Martin Luther King assassination? Um, the, the, or... So it was the 40th anniversary, mm-hmm. and at the time... Um, you know, the Afro-American newspaper, which was where I worked at that time, uh, was doing a commemorative issue on it. And so we had, we, the newspaper had access to an archive of interviews, but then I went out into the community just to, you know, get some current voices and um, interview people in, in Baltimore. I, I don't live in Baltimore, but I used to make that drive up there. So it was a learning experience for me about what was going on in uh, that city, you know, like after the um, after King's assassination. And so 
uh, there were a lot of stories about these department stores that would not let um, black people um, try on clothes in the dressing room. Or in some stores, they could try on the clothes, but they had to go into the basement. And so there was, they, they told me all of that because they were like, there was this, uh, the tension of segregation and the tension of um, things not being equal kind of bubbling up and uh, King's assassination was like the thing that had the pot boil over. And it wasn't just Baltimore, it was Detroit, DC, a lot of the places that uh, that actually burned was where there was this tension that finally bubbled over. But yeah, at that time I was a journalist um, and a uh, print journalist and you know, I... Um, I don't know. It was funny. Like I, I remember being asked, you know, if, um, if you know, like how the poetry and the journalism informed yeah, one exactly another. Yeah, that's exactly what I was and, thinking. Is uh, you know, how what how what do they have in common, and and how do they you know work together or not? Like what like how does that work? I mean, I, I'll say the um, the journalism. So like the research and stuff like that. Like that definitely spilled over into my poems. So, like, if I'm doing a persona poem, um, I will... And I like to imitate folks, so I will study that person or character to make sure I get the speech pattern right. But then the ideas are my own, but it's I'm just using that person or object as a uh, vehicle. Uh, so I'd say, like, the research um, part of journalism kind of crept into that. But with the poetry, I think... Being a poet before I um, was a journalist kind of like gave me some more tools in my arsenal. So there was a there was one point when I was at a uh, press briefing on um, the swine flu. This is when the swine flu was big and all of that. And so I had to write this article and all the other journalists are writing this article. And so I was trying to figure out how my article was going to stand out from everybody else's. I'm sitting there with 12 other reporters. And as I was sitting there thinking about approach, you know, I, my mind just went to writing about swine flu as if it was a person, you know, and they were talking about how, you know, you know, so basically the piece was about, you know, with the flu, how the swine and, and, uh, um, people confusing uh, the common cold symptoms or the symptoms of swine flu with the common cold symptoms, how the swine flu has a hard time standing out and then just kind of pulling from, you know, but, and I think, you know, being a poet gave me that option to think in that way to, whereas if I was a journalist, if, if, if I wasn't multi-genre, then I would say, okay, like I would probably fall back on the journalism practices that they it, that, that are ingrained in you when you're in journalism school. So I think those are the ways that they, they've um, informed one another. But I think, you know, in terms of how they're different from one another, I think I get a different kind of fulfillment with them. So poetry fulfills me in a way that journalism wouldn't, and then journalism fulfills me in a way that poetry wouldn't. So like with, uh, oh, I shouldn't even say journalism, I should say like when I'm writing in prose, so, like, I feel like uh, when I was doing a lot more essays, like, if I had something I wanted to tackle and I felt it needed more room, then I could go, you know, uh, put it in a prose form. Whereas if, um, 
if I had something else that didn't need as much space, um, then I could put it in a poem, you know? So it was, you know, just, I, I think doing both just kind of gave me more options or gave me more tools in my arsenal. And, and you said you, uh, you don't do that anymore, right? You, you work in for a nonprofit now? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. So I mean, it's funny, I'm actually on the other side of uh, communication. So when I was a journalist, and I was looking for experts to interview, I'd call these different groups and speak to their communications person, you know, to try to get in touch with their expert. So now I'm who the journalists reach out to when they want to talk to our experts about particular issues. Uh, And it's good. It's good. You know, I, um, I don't miss you know the erratic schedule of a journalist you know especially having a family you know um you know possibly being called away on a story or something like that i don't miss that um and i do get to do some writing you know when we're doing like reports or um you know just you know when we're doing like uh reports or other resources something like that i do get to do some writing and interviewing so i mean that kind of fulfills um that that need there so you know but it's just funny to be on the other side of communications uh doing that but um but yeah you know i think i've come full circle with with uh, my communications training well uh another thing that i thought was really cool you do these uh trailers and and book videos and uh, and that's actually why Mm -hmm. I think I think I uh, you emailed that you had like this book forthcoming just to a mass email and I was like hey you want to be on the show, and then I saw this awesome mm-hmm. trailer that you did for Gluttony. Um, do you want to maybe you. we should just play it and then uh, and then maybe talk about it a little bit? Yeah, okay. Sure, so I don't sure. think again you're not gonna be able to hear this, uh, so it'll just be silent mm-hmm. for you. But I'll play it for everybody, and uh, since you own it, you're giving us permission to play it. Although I, th- I don't know, <laughs> we're talking about it too, so it's also uh, it's also it's fair use. Problem. But uh, here we go. This is a, and I'll I'll skip to the head so it just does the poem. But uh, yeah. Gluttony. Combing the bargain bin, a woman who's not your wife brushes beside you, asking if the Roy Hargrove CD you're holding is any good. She's close enough for you to smell her ginger patchouli body wash, the angle she gives you, and her leather bomber jacket. The one unzipped, showing a white tee retracing her athletic stomach and arms. The jacket with its collar flared, makes her a bright blossom, booming its honeydew-scented tune along her neckline. And your father's voice from two decades before warns you about gorging on everything you see. You were 16 the first time he told you when your hunger hovered like that summer at Myrtle Beach. Sister strutting the boardwalk beneath a honey barbecue sun whose sweet light made each of them a long stretch of marinade. A chromatic scale of flavors along which your tongue was burning to play. And isn't temptation always lurking, eager to hold our common sense hostage? You tell the flower woman you're married after she points to a flyer for a roots show and says y'all should go. 
When she asked, are you happy? You remember a brother once asking how you could love one woman when the world's a buffet. The possibilities of pleasure laid out like jumbo crab cakes, lasagna rolls, and buffalo wings. What's gluttony if not a symptom of our own hunger consuming us? Wasn't Jack as careless selling his sustenance for a handful of beans? You remember the story of the stalk that almost made him a hungry giant's grub. You still hear the pastor preaching about gluttons wearing the rags of drowsiness, which is how your wife found you stumbling through the days. Your life before her was a stringless violin, a dark garden of wilted sunflowers, a camper trailer rusting against a moldy brick wall. You were once a city of power lines, boarded up clock towers, junked cars, and blazing drum barrel fires. What she saw in you, only her heart knows. Just like it knew you'd leave the temptress back at the listening booth, watching the automatic doors close behind you. At 16, you thought all there was to living was filling your appetite. Too young to know love is the everyday meal, that the lack of it kills quicker than the absence of food. Yeah, so that was uh, Gluttony, the trailer to uh, this book that we're looking at. Um, and I just loved um, the way, you know, I got to confess that I usually don't like uh, book trailers and like poem videos and things like that. Like, I, I feel like, um, you know, poetry is, is so, the language is so fundamental to the storytelling or something that a lot of times the visuals distract. And, um, and I just love mm. the way that that... Um, in a really simple way, like everything added to the storytelling of the poem. So um, I thought it worked really well. And I, you know, after watching that, uh, you kind of feel like you know you and you know your family a little bit, you know. And uh, I don't know, there's something that where the video adds to the connection there, which I thought was really cool. But can you um, explain a little bit how you got into doing video editing and, um, and, and how hard is this to do? Is this something poets should be able to learn? Or um, is it worth it? I don't know. I mean, I'm just kind of curious because most poets don't make their own book trailers like this. And you did such a great job. But I kind of want to pick your brain a little bit about it. Well, I uh, so it was it was a happy accident. I got into um, videography, the nonprofit that I work for. Uh, they do a lot of work in the intergenerational space. And there's a program that was in Philly. And I didn't have any video training. I was just, they, they bought a train ticket for me, told me go to Philly, get some video footage and put something together. And luckily my wife did um, video editing. And so she helped me with that, helped me get it together. And, um, you know, it turned out okay. But I'm one of those kind of folks like, okay, once I've done something and I've got no more fear of doing something, I want to learn to do it properly. So, you know, I want to feel official. So then that's when I started taking the um, evening classes at a nearby community college. And I went in just thinking I was going to pick up some extra skills for work. 
And but the way the program is focused, they push you to be entrepreneurial. So uh, an example of that was we had to come up with a logo. We had to come up with a script and then we had to, you know, using the equipment at the community college, we had to shoot it and it had to be like a, I guess like a trailer or an ad for like our company or whatever. And it really got me thinking. I was like, okay, you know, I can do this on the side. Uh, But, you know, when you do a videography course like that at a community college, they're mostly going to show you just the essentials. They're not going to show you the flash and all that stuff. And so they give you the essentials so that when you leave their program, you can do you can go out and start doing professional gigs and start, you know, um, building your chops that way. But where it was, you know, like, so that video, Gluttony, was entirely done in After Effects. And I had been wanting to learn motion graphics, wanted to get into it. And at the time, when my wife and I were looking at programs that taught that, it was like crazy expensive. And so I lucked out and came across a deal that you, you're not even going to believe this. So when we were looking at this, it was like, thousands of dollars right for this thing uh there's a school udemy i thought it was udemy but everyone that teaches in it calls it udemy and it's this online course and believe it or not it was two dollars two dollars it was like some holiday i think it was like around thanksgiving a couple years ago and they were like yes you know two dollars and so i hurried up and jumped on it but I didn't take the course until maybe like a year later because I didn't have the software to do it. And, you know, I just did this online course, went at my own pace and learned so much. And then I think where the additional learning, like when you learn to actually add some swag to your style and stuff like that, comes from following like YouTubers who are doing that and they're, you know, way ahead of me, you know. I always think it's better to follow somebody that's where you want to be or where you aspire to be and you learn so much from them. So that's, you know, I just, I picked up after effects really quick and, um, you know, I was doing poetry videos before, but they didn't have the motion graphics element to it that gluttony has. Uh, but in terms of, you know, is this something that poets should learn or whatever? I, I honestly, I think anybody with a curiosity to, you know, learn to do something more, uh, may get something out of that. You know, for me, it started off as a curiosity. I mean, I never thought that I would be doing anything in video. You know, it always intimidated me and I always saw people doing it in college and was like, okay, it was too late for me, you know, because I didn't major in it or whatever. But, you know, the community college program that I took showed me that, you know, it couldn't be further from the truth. And there were people in that class much older than me. Folks were retired and they were... But they had that curiosity. So I think anybody who's curious about learning it, you know, can learn it. If um, if if there are writers that want to have trailers done like this, but it intimidates them to, to try to do that. I mean, I always suggest for folks to fall back on to either pay a videographer to do it or if you have friends that do that to kind of fall back on a barter system. So, like, you know, you have a skill set that they need. You exchange that for uh, them doing some video work for you. So, you know, I mean, that's how I fell into it. I say I fell into it because 
I don't know if my job hadn't sent me to Philly. I don't know if I would have gotten into it. I probably would have, but maybe not as soon as I, as I did. Uh, do you think there's like a, a future for poetry in, in sort of the video medium? Um, and and mm-hmm. I, I don't know. I just, you know, as a as a publisher and editor in, of a nonprofit um, trying to promote and make poetry move forward, you know, I'm always just wondering about what – what is poetry going to mean in the future? You know, what are we going to do with it? And um, is this, is, is video poems, do you think there's a chance that it's sort of something that can catch on or, uh, or not? And, and, and if so, like what yeah. are the elements that, that make it work versus what, what doesn't? Because a lot of times, I think someone here, um, you know, people are saying gorgeous clips and words, um, visuals. Yeah, this was um, a Nikita um, in, uh, in India. She's saying uh, the visual was not very jarring. Which is the thing, like a lot of times it's mm. like jarring and it sort of distracts from the words. Um, I don't know. How do you think, mm-hmm. how do you think you can make video be something that, that fits with poetry? And, um, and is it going to be like, like, what do you think? Is it something that you're going to do a lot of, or is this sort of just a side thing to promote oh, yeah. a book? Well, I, uh, you know, like I always love giving myself projects and sometimes it drives my wife crazy. <laughs> She's like, there's other things in the house to do. But I think, what helped me with these poetry videos is that the videography program I went into, they train us to be documentary filmmakers. And so one of the things that we learn is like, if you're doing a documentary, of course you have to have story, but they always say the best way to start a documentary is to not do the B roll, but to go out and do the interviews Mm -hmm. first, because it's in the interviews You can make notes of what B-roll you're going to need to help illustrate certain points. And then when you get in the in the room to start editing, you're basically taking the um, looking for B-roll. That's not going to be jarring, but it's going to add to the story. And so I I just took the approach with the poetry video. I was like, okay, I already wrote I already wrote this poem. All I have to do is record it and then look for stock images or whatever I can find that's going to help show that so that it's, you know, try, kind of compliments. So I have to credit the um, the community college training me that way to think, you know, OK, if I'm, you know, to think like if I'm going to do a documentary, this is what I do first. And then I look for the pieces that are going to complement it. But, yeah, you were asking, like, is this the future? And. I, it's it's crazy. So I've been doing these things for a while and I'm still learning, but there are film, there are poetry film festivals that I found out about a couple really? weeks ago, whole right? Festivals? Whole festivals. So there's the Kate and I had to go, I had to pull it up. <laughs> yeah, I know about you know, motion poems. Some examples, but there's the, there, there's uh, Moving mm-hmm. Poems magazine. There's the Cadence Video Poetry Festival. I think the Cannes Film festival has a has a category for um, for poetry videos. There are uh, there's the film there's like the ninth international video poetry festival, and they're going to be doing you know, using a lot of um, poems like videos inspired by poems. Uh, there's the film and video poetry society. All of these things I did not know about until like maybe like a few weeks ago when I was trying to you know because I was trying to give the uh video gluttony some legs like i wanted to get it in different networks and so when i did a search saw all of this thing but i say this too like i'm a visiting well you know when i was doing in-person visits i was a visiting writer for the penn faulkner foundation 
And so when I do these trailers, you know, initially the mindset was to try to promote the book. But then the trailers have kind of taken on a life of their own. It's been like unintended benefits of doing a trailer. So like now uh, the teachers that work with Penn Faulkner to bring writers into schools, if they know that I'm coming and they do a Google search and they find these videos, they will play the trailers for their students to kind of get the students uh, prepared for my visit. And what I find and when I've talked with some of the teachers, the students, you know, like they're reading my work based on like what the what they interpret the poetic rhythm to be because they haven't heard my voice yet. But then when they see the trailers, it gives them an opportunity to hear like the intended way I meant for the poem to be read. But then they have the visual and they can experience the poem differently. But then another thing about poetry trailers was uh, I knew at some point I wanted to try to entice uh, publishers. Uh, you know, when I was looking for a publisher for Point Blank, I wanted to try to stand out or find some way of enticing them. So the, the I actually did a trailer for the manuscript and sent it, like included links in my book proposal. And so the publishers that I had just sent the proposal to without the video links, I mean, I sent to like maybe 20, 30 of them. They all said no. <laughs> when I sent, so then I waited like maybe a couple years later, once I got those video skills, I created two trailers sent out the proposal again to the same list and maybe a few additional ones still got a lot of no's, but the ones that were like, uh, uh, they were like, okay, I'm intrigued. Send me the manuscript. And I think the, uh, the, the videos helped them experience the poems in a way. But I think too, um, you know, I'm, I'm assuming this, but I think that a lot of publishers too, like when they're thinking about uh, what poets they want to publish, like they want to make sure the poet uh, is a poet that's going to be performing or reading places and promoting the book. And so the videos show that I'm comfortable, like just the way I read those poems, I'm comfortable doing readings. And so, and this, well, actually it's not an assumption. One of the publishers hit me back and was like, okay, yeah, it seems like you do readings. So they were interested in looking at the manuscript. And then I finally... Finally, Silver Birch Press uh, made me an offer for uh, Point Blank. So I, I mentioned all this to show like all of these different potential for uh, videos inspired by poems. Like I initially went into it thinking one thing, but then going through the process, they have these unintended benefits that that have um, you know that I've experienced. Yeah, that's a great point. Uh, you know, I, I've talked to publishers a lot <laughs> who have said that, um, you know, we, not only do we want to have good books, but we need to have um, writers who will promote their books and stand behind them and, and do work because there's no such thing, especially in the small presses, but even um, on, um, you know, a bigger press nowadays, uh, there's not much budgets for marketing and things like that. It just doesn't exist anymore. And so it's all yeah, on their own. Yeah. And if a book's going to be successful, it's going to be uh, because the poet knows how to how to promote it. I mean, you have a great website too. Um, everything just looks very professional you. that you do, and um, and that's just. I mean, it's sort of. On one hand, you wish that wouldn't be part of um, you know what you have to do to be a writer these days, but it kind of is. And uh, so, so I think that's good advice to everybody. Um, Richard Westheimer about the the videos. He says it seems like two different art forms. 
like songwriting versus mm. poetry. They exist in the same lyrical universe, mm. but rely on and tap on different senses. I think that's true. Yeah. Mm. Mm-hmm. Um, and Vicky Miko asks, and I noticed this. So let me put up so we can see again. But uh, that that poster behind you did you did you make that yourself using uh, some of your skills? Because I noticed that uh, before. That's an awesome. Oh, behind yeah, me. That's awesome. <laughs> no, no. So I and I'm gonna tag the. Um artist in this just to know that i'm giving him love but it's a nigerian uh it's a nigerian visual artist ania khan udofia and he i mean i love his work if you ever drive through dc you will see his artwork on uh buildings you know he gets i mean the dc commission on the arts and humanities they, they love him like he does all these mural projects throughout the city but no he he um i love his work and he was, when I was blogging, doing more print on my blog, um, I, I profiled him. I hit him up. I was like, hey, can I do a profile on you? Did the profile. The profile went viral. And he was like, yo, you know. And we, you know, it, 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 you know, we came closer over that. And then he liked the fact that my wife is Nigerian. So he was like, oh, okay, Niger. You marry a Niger. So, yeah. So, um my wife and I wanted to support him. You know, we didn't want to just say, oh, we love your work. We wanted to actually pay for one of his pieces. So we commissioned that photo behind us. And just to show you how awesome he is, the photo behind us, all we gave him was just the, you know, at the time my wife and I, we were living in a a studio apartment and we took the picture outside the apartment building back to back. That's all we gave him. All that other stuff, all that extra detail you see in the background is from his, he imagined that. And then my wife, like if you, you know, if you were able to see closer on the, uh, in the painting, she told him, she said she wants, she wanted the Nigerian flag somewhere in there. She didn't care where he put it. She wanted it. So he had it, he has it tied around her wrist, you know, over like this. And the whole thing with the pencils you see a lot of that in his drawing and it's like he'll he'll use pencils like his guns, but it's like his way of twisting like negative stereotypes. So he'll have like paintings of like, you know, kids, uh, you know, black kids hanging out in the street. But instead of guns, they have pencils and they're being creative, you know. So that's his trademark, too, is you always see pencils with like a trigger on it. But, um, yeah, I commissioned it. My wife and I love it. And I have it in the office because it's, you know, when we, well, you know, pre-COVID, when we were doing in-person uh, entertaining, because we like to entertain a lot of people at our house, uh, it's a nice conversation piece. People come into this room and they're like, oh, you know, we, we get to tell them about the painting. Yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, well, we're running out of time a little bit, but do you want to finish off with a poem or two? Sure, sure. So I will. Uh, so since... People already saw the video for Gluttony. <laughs> I read a different piece. So is... I'll read this one. So I because I read a angry poem about my dad. I, I feel like I gotta read one, you know, uh where we're getting along. So this is called What's Unsaid. Yeah, I was gonna ask. I was gonna suggest that you do the <laughs> do the good one for your dad. <laughs> Not leave a bad taste. (laughs) Exactly, exactly. (laughs) So what's unsaid? 
Your father calls and asks you to help him order something online. He thinks it's cool that with your account, he gets next day delivery. You laugh at how he treats it as if instead of a membership, he's talking about the television when it first came out, when those who couldn't afford it went over to their neighbors to marvel at the monochrome moving images. The irony snaps you back. What your parents comfortably spend would throw your family's budget into crisis. Your folks who own three homes and considered buying another just to have it. He's a lifetime away from the skinny 20-year-old who landed here from Trinidad with his mom and four sisters. The guy who worked as a union electrician to pitch in with the rent. Even now, when he talks about it, he squints, watching those early years slip beyond his field of vision. So he could have called just for help. So he couldn't have called just for help ordering holiday gifts, the smart scales that show your BMI and connect to your smartphone. He asked about his granddaughter, who's putting her dolls down for nap time in the living room. You both laugh when he asks if your wife is behaving, and you say, for now. That laugh takes you back to a sunny place in your childhood. Those summers and winter holidays you spent lugging his work bag and running to his truck for switches and fixtures. Didn't you live for those moments in his work van? The one he bought when he left the union to start out on his own. He could imitate anyone, the racist white foreman, the other black electricians who threatened to kick his funny-sounding ass. You wanted to be every bit the playboy he was. The brother so stealth, old heads back home had him hollering at sisters for them. You laughed a lot then, only disappointed when it was time to go home. That was before he questioned you being a poet. Before the insults and arguments that nearly came to blows and the six months he went without talking to you. You watch your daughter painting on a table in your den before she climbs in your lap and snuggles up with a smile. That was once you resting against your dad on his bed while he flipped through the papers reading the real estate section. You're a nearly four-year-old listening to her grandfather on speakerphone says, Papa, I love you. A dam breaks inside you when your dad's choked voice cracks back. I love you too, sweetheart. Awesome. That was What's Unsaid by Alan King. Thanks so much for being a guest on the Rattlecast, Alan. A great, great poem to end on. A really touching um, and, and a good example of your, your style of writing. So excellent, uh, excellent work, and, and thanks for sharing that. Um, thanks for having me. Yeah, yeah my pleasure. Uh, have a great night. Bye. Yeah, so that's Alan uh, W. King. You can find more of his work at alanwking.com. Um, now, what we're going to do from now on, I mentioned we're going to switch it up a little bit. I'm going to um, announce the next um, poet and um, the next prompt at this, uh, this little interlude. We'll take a little break for like maybe just 30 seconds while I get other things set up. And um, you can see who's up next on the Rattlecast. So 
so next week's prompt is going to be, next week's prompt is, a still life is a work of art depicting mostly inanimate and typically commonplace objects. Write a still life poem. That's going to be next week's prompt. And uh, next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Sarah P. Strong. Um, Sarah P. Strong is the author of um, The Mouth of Earth, her most recent book that just came out. She's the author of a whole bunch of other books. We've had her on uh, Rattle Magazine a whole bunch of times, too. I think maybe five or six of her poems have been in Rattle. They're always excellent poems. And um, I think maybe after the break we'll share a poem by Sarah P. Strong, if you'd like. Uh, But in the meantime, um, send your poems that you sent for this week to openmike at rattle.com. I'll get all that set up and we'll be back in just a minute. Yes, yeah, so um, we're going to read a poem by Sarah P. Strong now. Uh, I mentioned that she was on the show next week, and uh, this is going to be her reading a story. Here we go. Or me reading a story for her, I should say. Sarah P. Strong, a story. On the street of my childhood, a boy kept a pet boa constrictor. The boa ate live mice, one per month. The boy left home and left his mother in charge of the feedings. The mother, unaware the boa had just eaten, dropped a second mouse into the glass terrarium. The boa was already full and not interested. The mouse huddled in a corner, terrified. After several days, the mouse began to starve, No mouse food in the terrarium. The mother, unhappy in her role as procurer for a snake, kept as far away from the terrarium as possible and did not notice anything. Eventually, hunger grew stronger than terror, and the mouse took a bite of the boa constrictor. I won't prolong this. The bite became infected, and the boa died. Eventually, the mother noticed. When the son came back, he found the palatial glass cage inhabited by a single mouse. When I think about this story now, I think most often of all, of all the life I've spent being the huddled mouse in such danger, I felt but not. It is harder to see that I have also been the snake and the mother, too many times the mother. But today, when I thought of it, I was the boy, staring in amazement at a life I would not have thought possible. Had I not been there to witness firsthand the blindness of the body and the persistence of the body and the circumstances of the body among others, the body that needs and needs and forgets absolutely nothing. That's going to be next week's poet, Sarah P. Strong. Um, And that was a poem from round number 46, A Story. And I hope you enjoyed that as we um, go on the open mic. And um, now the prompt for this week was, oh, that's last week's prompt. This week's prompt was, uh, write a poem about a scientific discovery, real or imaginary. That was this week's prompt. If you have a prompt that you would like to uh, share with us, uh, this is how you do it. I'm going to put it up on screen now. Um, so email it to openmic, all one word, at rattle.com. Then send uh, a message to me at Skype, Rattle Poetry, all one word, or give me a phone call, 818-850-7727. That's 818-850-7727. Let it ring a few times. I will call you back when the time is right. Um, and let's see what, what 
I did first. Let's see. This is my poem for, for the prompt this week. Um, and I wrote about Tabby Star. I guess I should probably tell everybody what Tabby Star is. Um, I think 2000... So I, I looked, um, sort of looked, looked back through the um, scientific discoveries of the last 10 years. I found some article about it, and this wasn't included on there. But reading about some of the discoveries reminded me of this. Um, Tabby Star was discovered um, with the Kepler, Kepler uh, Observer... Um, which looks for exoplanets around other stars. And um, in 2015, uh, some citizen researchers looked through the Kepler data and found the star where, where the light... Um, so the Kepler looks for, for um, dimming of the light as uh, planets pass in front of stars. And uh, the, this team of citizen scientists was looking through the data and found a star that had a dip of 22%, which is just crazy. Like, it would have to be... Um, it would have to be like a huge, like bigger than Jupiter, like like bigger than a, as big as like a brown dwarf star or something crossing in front to, to occlude a, the light that much. Um, and nobody could really figure out what it was. And some of the theories were that it was um, aliens in some kind of, um, you know, like a, a starship armada or um, maybe, what do they call that? A, a Dyson sphere or a Dyson swarm of like aliens absorbing the energy of the star. And um, after studying and studying... And um, kind of hoping that it might be aliens. It turned out a couple of years later that um, it's probably just dust. And uh, but for a little while, I was hopeful for for um, alien life. And this is my poem uh, for that discovery. This is Triole for Tabby Star. Triole for Tabby Star. Why is it such a rare and fragile thing to find a ring around a star so like our own? The galaxy stretch out like jewels upon a string. Why is it such a rare and fragile thing? More spheres than grains of sand, but they don't sing. There's too much room for us to fill alone. Why is it such a rare and fragile thing to find a ring around a star so like our own? So that's my poem for uh, the prompt this week. Triolet for Tabby Star. Hope you enjoyed that. Um, and a triolet is an A-line poem with some of the lines repeating. Uh, we've had them on the, the Rattlecast before, so uh, you've heard of it. Uh, next week is uh, Megan's poem, The Beginning of Everything. This is Megan's poem for the week, The Beginning of Everything. And she has an epigram here. Bell Labs radio astronomers Arno Penzias and Robert Wilson were using a large horn antenna in 1964 and 65 to map signals from the Milky Way when they serendipitously, serendipitously discovered CMB, cosmic microwave background radiation. CMB is noise left over from the creation of the universe. And, um, and actually in my poem, the, uh, the, the galaxies out on a string, is it's a string of um, filaments from the cosmic background radiation. Um, and this is Megan's poem, The Beginning of Everything. The beginning of everything sounds like a highway at night from inside a motel room in a town where nobody lives. The beginning of everything sounds like a wandering train that keeps passing its station, a lost toddler on a quiet street. The beginning of everything sounds like a plane cabin when the windows are dark and strangers are dreaming. The beginning of everything sounds like walking toward the sea when you can't see it yet, but it's calling you in like a mother. The beginning of everything sounds like where the radio lands between a song and another language and a DJ saying, this one's for you. That was Megan's poem. 
for this week's prompt, the beginning of everything. All right, so let's see what you have. Uh, we have uh, Nivi, uh, Nivedita here. Let's call up Nivedita, see what she's got. Hello. Hey, Nivedita, how are you doing tonight? Thank you. How are you doing? I'm doing good. Um, yeah, great night of poetry. Um, great morning for you. You're still, still here, not at <laughs> exactly. work yet. Exactly. <laughs> um, I'm working from home today, so ah, as soon as perfect. I I'll jump right back in. <laughs> <laughs> Very nice. Well, I won't tell anybody if you won't that, that you're watching the Rattlecast. Um, yeah, they don't mind as long as I finish my work on time. So okay. Well, that's a good way to be. And I managed to do that. Um, so, what was your uh, what your was your scientific discovery for today? Um, so it could be either of anything. It's broadly based on genetics and DNA. So it could either be about the discovery of DNA or about sequencing. So take it as you will. Interesting. So it's basically just DNA. So anything related to DNA you could consider as this. And you are a, uh, are you a geneticist? Is that what, what, what was your specialty? I can't uh, remember. So my undergraduate, mm -hmm. my undergraduate degree was I specialized in human genetics and for postgraduate I specialized in immunology. So uh right up my alley mm -hmm. yeah exactly okay well go ahead whenever you're ready i'll put it up for and everybody there's yours with molecular biology mm -hmm. <laughs> if i remember correctly awesome yeah yeah it was okay go ahead whenever you're ready i'll put it up okay great thank you the poetry of life it is built to divide it is built to survive it is built to make us come alive six billion letters are needed needed to make the perfect combination the perfect fit the perfect us one single tiny mistake, and it all unravels. Here comes the avalanche. A, for Alzheimer's disease, early onset probably. T, for thalassemia. G, for Gaucher's disease. C, for Catch-22 syndrome. No, not convinced yet? Well, A, for Angelman syndrome, all the way up to Z, for Zellweger syndrome. How about now? Will you or won't you be perfect? The gamble is on. The bets have been placed. Excellent. That was uh, Nivedita Karthik with the Poetry of Life. Since I have you on the line, I was just reading about Alpha Fold 2. Do you know about that? Have uh -huh. you read about that? Uh, oh, my gosh. Um, a little bit. It's, it's, I mean, it's so crazy what they come up with, don't they? Like, anything that you think is true turns out false. Anything you think is false comes <laughs> out true. I mean, like, how can the proteins just, just do that? That's, that's, I, I, just, I just don't know. <laughs> So, so for people who and don't how know, how accurate is it now? Yeah, for for people who don't know what we're talking about, um, Google's deep. I don't know. I think it was was it the computer that did Go? Does it, it come from AlphaGo? It is the computer that did. Yeah, go, so yes. it's Google's Google super AI computer that um, that beat a Go player for the first time. Um, maybe I don't know five years ago or so is then turned on this uh, protein folding problem and um, figure out how these proteins magically like it's like sort of like if you imagine a protein is like a sheet of paper and then you crumble it up it folds in a certain way or it doesn't work and somehow it does it and we never knew how to how it happened how it and exactly Google, it was a mystery for like 50 60 years exactly 56 yeah so um so Google knows how it all works now, which is kind of creepy. But for the the for how um you know the the possibilities for medicine and things like that are just amazing. Um, so yeah, brings back how AI is ruling over us again, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it's always the AI. They're really, I mean, they're sort of laughing at us, foolish mortals. It took it took them like a year or something of working on this problem. It took us fifty six years mm -hmm. to get nowhere. Fifty six years, exactly. Yeah, yeah. But um, anyway, thanks for sharing your poem, Nivedita, and uh, always great to see you. Thank you. Okay. Thank you. Always great to see yep. you too. Bye-bye. Have a nice evening. Okay, let's um
let's call up Brent. So so for um, these open lines, I was going to say, I think I did at the very beginning, but if you want to share something that's not for the prompt, I think that's totally fine too. You could also share something um, that you, um, you know, wrote for a previous prompt and sort of just finished up. Uh, you can, it'd be nice if you, um, if you have uh, poems that are recent that are published somewhere, just email me the link if it's online and uh, we can share it that way. That'll be a lot of fun. So I want to just open this up to more than just the prompt poems, but uh, you, we can do prompt poems all night too, if you want. Um, so we have this, let's see, we have a missed call from an unknown person, which is always, I wonder if that's, um, whoever it is, just email me. And you can email me your phone number if you want. Whoever just called at 7.15, five minutes ago, email me uh, your phone number. I can call you that way. Or if it was Carlton, just let me know you want me to read your poem, and I could do that. Let me uh, call up Brent. Brent Stoffer, of course. Yeah, so we have a bunch of people on here. Ah, yeah, Carlton Johnson did say. Okay. Hey, Brent, can you hear me? Hey, wait, there's always this little delay, yes. Brent. Let's let yeah. wait for it to kick in. Uh, I have. Can you hear me? I can hear you. Yeah, yeah, we can hear you fine. Um, we can't can see you, but that's okay. Me. Yeah, we can't see you. If you want to click on your camera, you can. It's a. Oh, here minute. you come. There you okay, go. <laughs> that, that is the first time that's ever happened. It's always yeah. the other way around. Yeah, things happen. Uh, you know, things go wrong every yeah. pretty much every episode, but. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> it just depends on what it is. We'll find out. Um, yeah. So, what do you have for us? You have a uh, prompt poem, right? Ode to K two one five five D. Yeah, it's 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 just a, a, a exoplanet mm -hmm. uh, that they found uh, a few years back, about two thousand seventeen, I guess, and um, supposedly it has the potential to be just like Earth, but um, much bigger. Mm -hmm. A bigger and uh, yeah, and and uh, they'd like to do this. They're calling it a super earth. Ah, so I thought, oh well, yeah, that sounds good. Yeah, that's weird. Yeah, I hadn't heard about this one yet. Let's let's hear it. Yeah. It's uh, O two K two one five five D. Go ahead. Yeah. Um, O super earth, I peer over the moon's shoulder in a hopeless bid to see you. They say you're half again as big as dear old Terra. That's good. Maybe I could stretch out my legs there. They say those who can see past all the asteroids, gas, dust, parking tickets, and misdemeanors into the deep, quiet space between stars where smoggy chokes aren't coughed into raised coat collars as gray faces rush and jostle across crumbling bridges, that you're perfectly situated to support life. That's great. Mind if I come over? I know you're 200 light years away. I know half of you is always in unutterable darkness. Suits me fine. Excellent. Thanks so much for sharing that. was Ode to K2155D. Yeah. Um, I, <laughs> I hadn't heard about that one. Yeah. but uh, the, the best part is the title. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's good stuff. Thanks for sharing that. Um, every time. Yeah. Yeah. Have a good night, Brett. Okay. Yeah. Thanks a lot. Yeah. <laughs> okay. I'll see you next time. Bye. Yeah. I was going to say... Uh, Every time they find, the more planets they find, the more I'm convinced uh, that uh, <laughs> we're living in a simulation because there should be, that's kind of what my poem was about today. There should be, uh, there should be life and there's life everywhere we look in our uh, solar system and there's not life anywhere else, it seems like. And uh, that, that just, that doesn't make sense. 
Um, but let's do, uh, let's call up Richard Westheimer. He has like lichen or lichen. Is it lichen or lichen? Is it both? Like lichen, I'm made of love. Okay, let's call up Richard and see, see what he's got. Richard, hey, how you doing tonight? Hey, Tim. Um, so the deluge of poems finally made you go to an hour, eh? <laughs> Yeah, well, you know, originally I wanted it to be like a true open mic um, and just have people share whatever. And then the guests' friends could come in and share stuff too because they didn't watch last week probably. Um, but then there just wasn't like consistent enough. But at this point, it's consistent enough. We always have we always have you guys, and um, you know we can welcome in other people and and have discussions too. If anybody wants to talk about anything, I was thinking, um, Caitlin Caitlin Buxbaum mentioned. Um, so what did she say? She said something about. Um, let's see. Uh, there's some drama with somebody. <laughs> yeah. um, Louise Gluck, I think she said. She oh, was, right. And I have no idea what she's talking about. So if anybody wants to talk about that, if Caitlin wants to share what, what that was, uh, you know, we can talk about other poetry stuff too, or anything um, about, uh, you know, that came up during the episode. Uh, but your poem is, uh, like, is it, is it lichen or lichen? Uh, that's one of those words, um, I see it in print, I never hear anyone say. So in my head, I think, I don't know which one it is. <laughs> uh, for purposes of my poem, let's call it lichen. Okay. Okay. <laughs> uh, so, so uh, t- two other notes. One is Megan's poem. A poem that I tried to work on last week was about the destruction of Arecibo. Mm-hmm. Um, I, it, I just sort of got too emotional to be able to discover anything in the writing about it. But yeah, that was you know, heartbreaking. That, that was sort of my first birth into science in the early '60s when when that came online. It was just like this this magnificent wonder, and Megan's poem sort of captured some of that some of that piece. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. So this one, uh, about a year ago, I read Bill Bryson's short history of nearly everything. And one of the things that fascinated there was the history of lichen and the fact that there was a discovery in the late 19th century about what it really was. So, And I'll read that in the, in the epigraph. Okay. So like lichen, I am made by love. In 1867, Simon Schwendener discovered that lichen was really two species algae and fungi, feeding each other's physical and biological needs. His discovery led to the coining of the word symbiosis, which I didn't know. Symbiosis was not a word until he discovered symbiota. Wow. Yeah. I didn't know that about, about lichen either, that it was, it's algae and fungi. I didn't know that. Huh. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, algae supplying the chlorophyll and sugars and, 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 uh, fungi pro- providing uh, structure and adherence to this rock. And wow, that is so cool. I had no idea. Okay. Well, let's and, hear. and a complication that doesn't work for this poem is that, uh, about two years ago, a guy discovered that it's actually three things that are working together, not two, but just, Wipe that out of your mind for this poem. <laughs> okay. Simon Schwendener gasps when he discovers the lichen under his lens is a symbiote, two species together that lean one on the other to make a life. In his dream, he said, oh, my love is like a brown, brown fungus, fed sweet sugar by algae, moistened by a fungal touch greened by the sun, sheltered from storms, anchored cell by cell together, and then rooted to rock. Like lichen, I too am made of us, 
my love who binds me to the day with to-dos and don'ts, I who harvest the sun and bring her strawberries for breakfast, she who floats a single zinnia blossom in a bowl on the dining table, drenches me with sweat and the smells of summer on our skin until, like lichen, we again are not one but two, each of us as different as rock is from water, as sea from shore, as hand is from holding. Excellent poem. Thanks so much for sharing that. It was Like Like and I Am Made of Love by Richard Westheimer. Thanks for thanks. Yeah, thanks as always, Richard. Yeah, good to see yeah, you. Yeah, good to see you too. Okay. Um let's see. So here we have let's do um let's see. Let me remind everybody, if you'd like to share a poem for the open mic, email to openmic at rattle.com, all one word, and then uh, send us a chat message over Skype to Rattle Poetry, all one word. And uh, call by phone, if you'd like, 818-850-7727. Uh, that's 818-850-7727. Let it ring a couple times, then hang up. I will call you back when the time is right. Um, and uh, let's move on, though to carlton johnson he has um yeah so anything goes so carlton johnson says sorry this is not on topic here let me let me paste this into a file first so we don't just one second this is water and stone by carlton johnson and uh, let me do it that way it's a little better um, so carlton says sorry this is not on topic but since you said it can be on anything i thought i would send this one this is from my first collection, A Thimble of Time, available now on Amazon. This particular poem is based on a true story. I heard Terry Gross interview a father of two schizophrenic sons, both who attempted suicide, one who succeeded. This one is based on the one who attempted to drown himself. This is Water and Stones. I'll put it up on screen, then I'll read it for, uh, for Carlton. Here we go. Yeah, Water and Stones. Sunline clouds creep up like bystanders at a brawl. The lake, flat and gray. The pit, pit as you, like David, come armed with stones and to slay. Heavy in the woolly linings of an oversized peacoat, stray cobbles, shards of distant mountains, cumbrous stones clank in your pockets. You wade in to enjoy the first cling of cloth against cold, hard calves. Not deep, but a tot can drown in two inches, mindful of the time and the calculus of death. At three feet, you stop. The heavy darkness coats you as you plod through welcoming waves. Just beneath the surface now, the beast beckons to its sacred arena. Laden, the coat sinks as if on instinct. Passers-by see you defy all reason and call to stop, but your calls are unanswered. As the summons to enter grows louder, they overweighed, catching discards of hope in your voice. You stare opaque and glassy, is broken as wanders shake you back to life. The water subsides, and you return shocked to shoreline, the stony beast, mere ripples now. And that was Water Stones by Carlton Johnson. Thanks so much for sharing that, Carlton. Um, let's call up next. Let's call up Sally Dunn. So the phone is ringing for Sally. I'll find her poem as we get to it. Hey, Sally, how are you doing tonight? 
Oh, I hear myself in the background. Okay. Just X out of that, so I'll, I'll mute you for a second. Okay, that sounds better. Okay. <laughs> um, so, so I did write a poem for tonight's prompt, but uh, it was really bad. So. <laughs> <laughs> so when you opened it up, I I uh, pulled up a poem that I wrote for a prompt for about a month ago, and um, I didn't read it then because it, two things: it wasn't finished, and also I was the prompt was um, right in in the voice of a famous person. Oh, I remember that, yeah. Mm-hmm. And um, I wasn't really comfortable with um, identifying who I was writing about because the way the poem took me, it took me to a place where um, I didn't think the person would actually say. And um, since I really admired him, I didn't want to, you know, slander his name or something. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, but... Uh, Caitlin's poem sort of showed me the way of how to do that. So I want to thank her for that, and uh, I'll give it a try. Great. Yeah, go ahead. Okay. A man of God amid the aftermath. I cried the first day when a man sat dry-eyed in front of me, the cameras, the world, looked right at the man of power and asked him if he remembered throwing him to the ground pulling a wet bag over his head, dragging down his pants, and shoving a stun rod up his ass. The man of power held his hands over his mouth as if to hold back his own vomit and said, yes, I did that to you. They came for answers. What did you do to my little girl, my brother, my husband? They came for absolution. I raped her. I tortured him. I killed. After the first day, I cried only in church. My God is everything and everywhere, or he is nothing and nowhere. He allowed this. His hand is in every horror. He made me watch a boy of 16 collapse to the floor sobbing as he told how at 14 he raped the first girl, stood by and watched his friends kill her. How he helped bury her, how he did it again and again, until rape, murder, and dirt beat and buried that boy. My God made me hear the woman scream, made me see her fists fly at the head of that boy, who had been her son, a monster she'd fed at her breast. A monster, that's what she called her own son. My God, you did this to us. Wow, that's a powerful poem by Sally Dunn that was uh, a man of God amid the aftermath. Thanks for sharing that, Sally. Thank you. Bye-bye. Bye. All right. Let's see. Um, let us do, as we just wait for to see if anybody else would like, um, let's see. Let's see if anybody else would like to call in. The numbers are on screen, 818-850-7727 or uh, Rattle Poetry, all one word. Um, and if we wait to see if anybody else wants to before we get rid of the uh, show for today, let's do another poem by Sarah Pemberton Strong. This is another one I love. Um, and actually, I pushed the random button and another one by uh, Sarah P. Strong. She's going by Sarah P. Strong now. Showed up. This is another thing that amazes me. 
Another thing that amazes me is how the rush hour subway, everyone harbors beneath their dripping coats a set of genitals. No one can look anyone else in the eye, so obvious is our nakedness under the clothes. Though it's only October, there's a blizzard dumping sleet across Manhattan, and the streets are full of people anyway, some wearing nothing, more than sweatshirts, their hunching shoulders caked with fallen slush. It's amazing some people will stand outside for an hour in this weather just to see the decooning retrospective at the MoMA. Myself, it turns out, included. Also, that the same shade of paint can make some people happy but give others headaches. When I get home, I'm going to paint my living room orange against the six months of winter that's just begun. The platonic ideal of a raincoat is bright yellow, and though I can't see one beyond all the crotches on the Lexington Avenue local, it's comforting to think that there will be an appearance soon, little right to remind us of the sun's assured return. It amazes me that I still want God to be more than a perfect metaphor for loving that I still want to fall on my knees for something other than this woman swaying above me, her fingers knotted to the subway strap, the folds of her labia just a couple inches from my mouth while our bodies fly through a tunnel under the city, and high above us a deluge of gray crystal blots out the gold of trees all down Fifth Avenue. Amazing that the light of the sun makes us open our eyes in the morning, and that when there is no light, our eyes open anyway, searching for it then for each other. That's another poem by Sarah P. Strong, next week's guest on the Railcast. Uh, Caitlin Buxbaum called us up. Let's call up uh, Caitlin and see what she has, uh, has to say or share. Hmm. Struggling to connect today. Well, it's not connected with Caitlin. I'll try again. I think um, in the chat, Caitlin mentioned... Um, um, having a buffering problem, I think she said. So maybe the connection's a little weak today. This is a poem, um, another uh, poem for the scientific discovery prompt. Um, this is David Langenhorst. And I think uh, there are a bunch of people who email uh, poems in who um, you know aren't here live, so can't share. And uh, that's one of the reasons why I wanted to just, it's not necessarily going to be two hours every every week, but I wanted to at least be able to go that long so we can get as many people in as possible. Um, well, Caitlin's calling again. Let me answer. Hey, Caitlin, Hello? are you there? Hello. How are you doing tonight? Oh, uh, pretty good. Um, <laughs> so I am calling you on my phone. That's why, um, things got weird, I guess. Uh, I didn't have my computer or Skype or anything pulled up. Um, and I figured I'd try it this way. Okay, great. So do you have something you want to share? Or something you want, do you want to tell me what uh, the deal with, with uh, Luis Gluck is? I was curious. Uh, you guys kept asking, so I figured I should, I should call in. And, <laughs> and also, um, I really wanted to write a poem today about some of uh, Galileo's discoveries, but I just mm-hmm. didn't have time. Um, but I do have a poem called Chemistry in my book that came out in May, so I, I figured I'd read that too. Excellent, yeah. Um, so do you want me to read that or explain the Louise Gluck thing first? Well, explain the Louise Gluck thing first, because I am curious. Uh, so I just happened upon this. Um, I There's a Facebook group I'm a member of, and somebody asked, does anybody know like what's going on, why people are so mad about or mad at Louise on Twitter? And I was like, all right, well, now I'm going to go find out. And um, she gave her Nobel Prize acceptance speech yesterday, mm-hmm. I guess. 
And in it, she said a lot about um, a William Blake poem called The Little Black Boy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, of the era, it's, I, I like William Blake, I will say. Um, but he came from a time where people, a lot of people had lots of misconceptions about race and things like that. Um, and so a bunch of people were upset that she made this claim that this was the best poem ever written. And it kind of, I mean, you should read the poem and read the speech. Like I said, it, it, it just came on my radar. So I'm still kind of formulating my opinion on it, Mm -hmm. but, um, it seems like it wasn't in very good taste. Um, a lot of people kind of, uh, well, I saw at least one Twitter user who, um, compared it to doing blackface Mm -hmm. Um, because in the poem Blake takes the position of the eye um, and speaks from the perspective of this imagined little black boy so it's there's a lot of controversy is the long and the short yeah that's interesting I'm completely unfamiliar with that poem Um, I first knew that she was was named poet laureate or not poet laureate Nobel uh, prize winner for literature this year Uh, but I'm not familiar with that poem at all so I'm curious to check it out and, and hear the speech yeah, and I didn't know, I had read the poem before, but I didn't remember much about it. Um, and it's one of those things, like just on a quick read, it, you know, I imagine that he didn't mean any ill will in writing it, but we just have a different perspective today that's like, mm, you can't really do that. When, when was Blake writing? The 1700s? Is that, is that, um, Blake? Yeah, I want to say... Like seventeen fifty. Yeah, that's what I was thinking. Um, but I'm, I'm not even sure. I know, I know Tiger, Tiger, Burning Bright. That's about all I know. In the illuminated manuscripts. Gosh, it's been a long time since I went to college. <laughs> yeah, you know, I really, I really should know because I, I studied him a lot. But um, somewhere around there. Um, so anyway, if anybody wants to continue discussing that, that's what's happening. Yeah, yeah. Well, I'm curious. I'm, I'm looking forward to looking it up actually when the show's over. Um, so do you want to share the poem from your, you said it was a poem from, um, about a scientific discovery from your book that's, that's already out. Well, it's actually not about a scientific discovery, but it's scientific ish. Gotcha. Um, yeah, it's just one page, so I'll read it. It's called chemistry. Okay, go ahead. Whether you're single or spoken for thousands of miles from home or right in your proverbial backyard, there's a spark in the air that surrounds your body in the midst of attraction, a tingling sensation that has you hoping no one can see the fluorescent ceiling emanating from your eye sockets, has you reasoning there must be a scientific explanation, or else your world will come crashing down, inflating your heart to impossible proportions and beating your brain into oblivion. Can you get an aneurysm from infatuation? Fear not. You can be comforted knowing your emotions are actually the body's attempt to sound the mating call, a series of neuron firings and glandular fluctuations designed to get you procreating, which will recognize, which you recognize will produce a whole set of other long-living problems. And that sets you walking away, thinking, of course, it's just science. With all the enthusiasm of a freshman forced to memorize the periodic table of elements, learning to live in a world without magic. Excellent. And that's it. <laughs> yeah, thanks so much for sharing that, Caitlin. Rising on the title of the poem and the book. The title of the poem is Chemistry, and mm-hmm. the title of the book is Interstitials, 
I will put that in the chat when I get back to it. Yeah, please do. Thanks so much for calling in. And, uh, always great to talk to you. Yeah, thanks for having me. Yep, good night. Bye. Okay, so, um, yeah, that was uh, Caitlin Buxbaum with a poem from her book. Um, I was going about to uh, do this poem by David um, David Langenhorst. He doesn't give any context, so uh, we're just jumping in here cold. But this is the thing about, um, you know, since we had a limited amount of time, I always try to cut it off at 7.30 if I could for my time, 90 minutes my time. And um, so, if, you know, when people could call in, we get to them, and then I never got to the other people that were sharing stuff. Um, and so that's one of the things I wanted to do. And once again, this is a poem by David Langenhorst, um, who listens uh, probably, uh, you know, tomorrow. I think the majority of our listeners are uh, after the fact, like like driving the next day or something like that. This is his poem, Discovery, for the prompt this week. Here it is. Discovery. At eight years old, what did I fear? Not the boogeyman, not a fire or flood, not an auto crash or a thermonuclear explosion. No, there was something much more scary, a tiny little virus called polio. If it found a way into my body, I might suffer paralysis. I might not be able to breathe. The disease is poliomyelitis, and it was ravaging the country. Thousands of kids like me on their backs in an iron lung. The iron lung was like a cylindrical coffin, except that you were alive with your head sticking out. The changing pressure inside helped your chest to expand and contract. There was a mirror by your head and a frame to hold a book or magazine. Of course, you couldn't turn the pages. That seemed like a fate worse than death. Then along came Jonas Salk. Dr. Salk used science to defeat the ruthless virus. A vaccine was developed and rushed to the people. Funding for the research came from donations to the March of Dimes. When asked who owned the patent for the vaccine, Dr. Salk replied, Well, the people, I would say. There is no patent. Could you patent the sun? I love that famous quote that's from, uh, from Dr. Jonas Salk. Uh, Could you patent the sun? And that was a poem, um, once again, by David Langenhorst. Um, lucky, let's see, Vicky Miko is here. Um, Yeah, let's do Vicky Miko's poem, too. Um, so I just want to get to as many people as we can. Um, so this, Vicky Miko just emailed this. I think she can't connect right now um, to call in, I think. But uh, but I'll read it for her. This is her. And uh, there might be uh, some words in here that I that I butcher, because um, I already see the title. I'm not sure how to say, but we'll see. Um, this is The Themtharitz Copious Abhors. The Thamtharitz copious abhors. Interesting. Scientists have discovered a new breed of beings in America. The Thamtharitz copious abhors. A particular genius of conlangers who thrive on soured cockbullingers, bladder guck, and booger dams. They may be difficult to spot. The most common cue, however, is their peculiar reek that scientists have labeled dedumskew. Copious abhors, copabores for short, natural habitat is anywhere normal. Researchers have discovered several rituals exclusive to the breed. Coabores must ready their day in, by soaking their feet in full-strength lye gel. That lye soak is better when it burns bad, critical to the formation of dedumskew. 
The rite takes about a minute. Then they must wait to witness the spouting fungus, when warm and soft, their putrid toe grits puff and pulse with infused lye jelly juices. The toxic datum skew sucks up through yellowed veins into hollow viscous works where it stokes Coabor's bodies clean and full. It's important to note that the coursing, scouring, curdling end spots are at the Coabor's crowny heads. These end spots emit the foulest degree of datum skew. The instantaneous side effects glimmer balk bad enough to even cringe weep, the most scholarly them others. Coabors are very clever bards. Their datum skews fester and boil in specific septic frontal lobes so bad that, if you observe closely, you might see their eyeballs swell and throb, their veins bloodshot yellow by the mix of mashed-up fusion piss. On the street or in the checkout line, you may not be able to detect them on an immediate basis because they wait, simmering. One cocklingor blurt can give them away at any tense moment. They're experienced and adept middle finger judders. They sizzle, if you touch them in the wrong spots, all their spots are wrong. Their tiny balls and labia stick together, hang pendulous, sweating, spewing tiny, viscous pellets of datum spew. Be aware, scientists say, if you're not paying attention at all times, the sweet sweat pellets will land on you. Coabors sweat a lot. They are lame and groping limbers who have impotent chalky spines. Scientists advise, do not touch. Do not provoke endless and dire self-defense of your life. Coabors sleep in dank bunks beside pails of stagnant, rotted plaster puke. They clean their houses shining every day with massive mold boards. The gut rot is scraped into the dump and save and cycle bins. The stench so bad it enlivens their pestules to a high so high that they fear they will burst if they can't let it out, out to the world in general. They have offspring who are totally normal until they become old enough to spout horns. Most coabores have unfortunate and heaving parenting skills spent by their dried up minds. Their innocent kids grow on marinated sludge stews <laughs> day after day. It is this ritual that changelings the babies to authentic coabores. Although the Thermtharis copiabores may not be the threat per se, researchers don't yet know what this new breed is capable of. They focus to decode a specific antigen to the datum skew. In conclusion, researchers have discovered that coabores suffer from only one weakness, their inability to defecate. It all just builds up inside their hollow viscous. Scientists predict one day soon they'll blow. <laughs> that was, uh, it's hard to get through that. That was kind of cracking me up. That was uh, Vicky Miko with the Thamthardis copiabores. Thanks for sharing that, Vicky. Um, it kind of reminded me of, um, I just realized as I was reading this, that um, uh, if everybody read the book with no pictures to their kids, where you're just forced, because uh, that's what you do when you read a book, is you say the words out loud, you're forced to say whatever the book says. And <laughs> so you guys can do that with me all night long. Um, okay, is there anybody else? Let me see. So we are running up in time. A tiny bit of time left if anybody else wants to call in. Uh, I'll put the numbers on screen just one last time. It's uh, 818-850-7727 or uh, Rattle Poetry on Skype. I thought I'd share one poem from my own book, um, which is about a scientific discovery. Uh, this is my American Fractal, which is uh, it's about 10 years old. or No, 12 years old now. Jeez, I'm old. And this is uh, about... A strange uh, 
I don't know if it's not even a scientific discovery. It's a scientific theory. It's about the quantized redshift and also the, uh, which is a, a sort of fringe physics theory uh, about the universe that galaxies sort of jump in a certain amounts of time. And, um, and, and the redshift is because time itself is slowing down as the universe progresses forward, which is just a fascinating thing. But it's also about the discovery of dark energy and the fact that the universe is accelerating its expansion. And so eventually we will be left um, with nothing. And that's the fate of the universe, the, the cold, dark death of the universe. You know, I think uh, how many hundreds of billions of years from now, though. This is Poem from Dark Matter. First light through the limbs of the trees, and then the trees. Each morning the hum of traffic through the freeway wall, and then the traffic we're bottled in, each thing first betrayed by the shapes around it, as if shadows held all our weight. Like the empty space that props each fiery nest of stars, the smooth circumference of every heavenly body toward which astronomers might dream. I'm at the kitchen window, early light, reading science for tea leaves. Pluto, it seems, is far colder than we thought. Even the constant speed of light is decaying. And look where thoughts can lead. Somewhere in a lonely future, a man hears his heart stop beating long before the world goes black. So slow the rate at which nothing approaches. Or maybe like an ostrich we'll outrun our past, and then our present. And this, my gift to you, whatever you'll make of it, the soul, a ship in a bottle lost at sea, drops its anchor anyway. That's a poem from Dark Matter from uh, American Fractal. And I do believe that is the show for tonight. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. Um, let's see. Um, as I mentioned earlier on the show, um, the prompt for this week is going to be... I'm going to pull it up again, though. The prompt for next week is going to be... A still life is a work of art depicting mostly inanimate and typically commonplace objects. Write a still life poem. That's your prompt for next week. You don't have to write a... Um, a prompt poem, you can share anything you want now is the new rule, but uh, it's, it's nice to have a prompt, and, and hopefully a bunch of people will write their still life poems. Um, and next week's guest on the Rattlecast is going to be Sarah P. Strong. We heard uh, two of Sarah's poems earlier, and uh, her newest book is The Mouth of Earth. Poems from the uh, Test Site Poetry Series. It's Sarah P. Strong. Rattlecast number 71, Tuesday, December 15th, 9 p.m. Eastern Time. Hope you have a great night, and I will see you then. Good night.